Good day. Welcome to the Agiostos. My name is Bill Dykstra. Today is January 10th, and we are commemorating St. Gregory of Nyssa. Thanks for deciding to tune in today, even though there's no real frequency that you're tuning into. It's just a button that you're pressing. Still, regardless, I find that saying tuning in is a little more satisfying than clicking on a screen. Regardless, today is the feast day of St. Gregory of Nyssa. Now, if you didn't already know, St. Gregory has a ton of writings out there. And sometimes what I do on a feast day is I go over one of the saint's homilies or exegetical writings. Gregory has done a lot for uh, a lot of biographies also um, during his time. But what I would like to do today, I was thinking about this, what I would like to do is actually just go over his biography at first. Because I didn't really know anything about it. I just knew that he was a brother of St. Saint, uh, Saint Basil the Great. He was friends with St. Gregory of Nazianzus. And so going over kind of the beats of his life is what I wanted to focus on today. So that's what we're going to be doing first. And then we're going to be talking about a more um, controversial aspect of St. Gregory, uh, something that still poses uh, controversy today. So we're going to go through that as well. Anyways, let's begin with his life. Let's, uh, let's get to know this saint. Gregory was born in the Roman province of Cappadocia somewhere in the mid-330s. His family was extremely pious even for the time. He was a third-generation Christian. His mother was Macrina the Elder and is said that she studied under St. Gregory uh, Thamagen... Oh my goodness. St. Gregory, zooming in, Thomaturgus. Uh, he was a relatively well-known theologian and wonder worker who Gregory of Nyssa would one day write about and I would one day mess up his name. Anyways, the, the rest of Gregory's family were, they're also canonized people, those who we know about. His parents were Saints Basil the Elder and Amelia. His father was a lawyer and Gregory had uh, eight other siblings. And of these siblings, again, of whom we know uh, have been canonized. We know the names of Macrina the Younger, Peter of Sebest, St. Basil the Great, and St. Necratius. Now, some of those names might sound familiar. It's funny because you, you hear the names and they all sound very normal sounding names. We have Macrina, we have Peter, we have Basil, we have Gregory, and then we have Necratius. Um, I guess maybe he's the one that they didn't like. However, I doubt that because uh, in Gregory's writings, it actually says that he's, he was quite handsome. He, was, he had a lot of potential, but he left all of the kind of worldly success to go and become a monk. So he was probably pretty great in their eyes. Anyways, moving on. You would think that with such a pious family as we've already stated, pious brothers and sisters, you think it would be a breeze for anyone to develop holy habits and soar to the spiritual heights. Well, not Gregory. It is unknown if Gregory put off baptism in life because of a personal preference or because adult baptism was not the custom of the day. We do know that he was lax in his piety. He had become a retter like his father and was content in that. Retter and lawyer, I think, are interchangeable in those days. Now, one day his mother sent him a letter telling him that he ought to attend a religious event that was taking place close to him. 
The relics of the 40 martyrs of Sebest, sorry, were being venerated. Gregory, out of respect for his mother's wishes, attended the veneration. It was a long event into the evening, and Gregory was bored of the prayers that were going on and on and on. And he left, and he fell asleep in a nearby garden. He then had a dream. He had a dream where the 40 martyrs of Sebest confronted him, and they scolded him for his sinful lack of zeal. And then they proceeded to beat him with rods. Gregory awoke from this dream, and he immediately was remorseful for his, his lack of zeal, his lack of piety, and being so flippant with the faith. He made a public profession of faith and became a reader for the church. However, that was only for a short time. He eventually relapsed into his former life and went back to his previous career, living for himself. However, a friend of the family, Gregory of Nanzianzus, confronted him in a letter. Why should you not hear from me what all men are saying in whispers? They do not approve of your inglorious glory and your gradual descent to the lower life and your ambition. For what has happened to you, O wisest of men? For what do you condemn yourself that you have cast away the sacred and delightful books which you were reading to the people and applied yourself to bitter ones and preferred to be called a professor of rhetoric rather than of Christianity? Though it is full late, become sober again and come to yourself once more and make your apology to the faithful and to God and to his altars and mysteries from which you have taken yourself away. What of the offense given to others by your present employment? For a man lives not for himself alone, but also for his neighbor. I shall be grieved to speak gently if you do not see what is right, nor follow the advice of others. Forgive that my friendship for you makes me grieve. Those were some harsh words. But Gregory heeded them and entered into his brother's monastery at Pontus, that brother being Basil the Great. In 371, Gregory was ordained as a bishop by his brother to the small town of Nyssa. This was not before, as his very same brother testifies, that Gregory had to overcome his repugnance for the office. When holy people in history of the church are called to be bishops, they shirk and run from the position. Now, this can be for many reasons. A bishop is in the public, and the humble do not seek the limelight. The work of a bishop also leaves less room for prayers. There is also aversion to power. Even if that power is ecclesial, it can still damn you if you want it for its own sake. Nonetheless, it seemed that Gregory's appointment is one that Basil would regret. In the years that Gregory spent at Nyssa, he unwittingly got in the way, at times, of Basil's agenda, who is also a bishop. Eventually, those who craved Gregory's hierarchical position made maneuvers to undermine him. Both he and his brother fought against the Arian heresy of the time, which was rampant in the church. 
Now, eventually, the Aryans gained the upper hand for a moment and had their man, Valens, placed upon the imperial throne. So, obviously, for them, this was politically advantageous, and in 376, Gregory was falsely accused by the Arians of mismanagement in a local synod orchestrated by them. Gregory was then successfully ousted of his position of bishop, and for the next two years, he traveled town for town living as a hermit. However, upon the death of Emperor Valens, Gregory was reinstated as bishop, and there was much rejoicing. From here on out, before his death, there are a few notable moments in Gregory's life, one being his involvement with the Council of Constantinople. It was this council that where he gave a treaty on the Holy Spirit. It is this council that finalized the Nicene Creed, Gregory's influence being an invaluable additive. Now, before I end this podcast, I did mention before I wanted to go over and highlight some of Gregory's works and the problems that can emanate from them, even until today. There are those today who have adopted Gregory as a sort of spokesman or poster child for universalism. It's that belief that one day everyone will be saved. Now, this is not a tenant of the faith. In fact, it runs against Orthodox Catholic teaching. Did Gregory, in fact, teach heresy? Well, at one point, yes, he did. He preached a particular strain, if you will, of universalism called apocatas... I'm sorry... This is going to be hard. Apocatastasis. Apocatastasis. Apologies to all you apocatastasites out there. I just got your heresy wrong. Anyways, this doctrine essentially described hell in the way that we would describe purgatory as a place of refinement and purgation of the soul. He states this in a work titled On the Resurrection and on another one, The Life of Moses. He believed that evil men and demons through the furnace of hell would one day be reformed and saved. This is a notion that he likely adopted from origin. However, later in life, in a work entitled On Infants' Early Deaths, uh, a work that he was trying to theologically describe, uh, kind of like the path of the soul of an unborn child or an infant upon dying, and he says this about the death of an unborn child and those who are born and live in sin. Certainly in comparison with one who has lived all his life in sin, not only the innocent babe, but even one who has never come into the world at all will be blessed. We learn as much, too, in the case of Judas, from the sentence pronounced upon him in the Gospels, namely, that when we think of such men, that which never existed is to be preferred to that which has existed in such sin. For as the latter, on account of the depth of the ingrained evil, the chastisement in the way of purgation will be extended into infinity. As for what has never existed, how can any torment touch it? So Gregory is referencing Matthew 26, 
the scene of the Last Supper, and Jesus says that the one who betrays him, it's better that he would never be born than what, uh, than what he will receive. Also, he mentioned hell as being an eternal purgation. Now, I'm no professional scholar, and likely neither are you. However, what can we make of this? Well, it seems that if someone voiced one belief earlier on in life, yet their later writings voiced an opposite belief in the case concerning the nature of hell, it is reasonable, then, to assume that Gregory just changed his mind. He's essentially saying that sin is a fate worse than death, stating that the punishment will be forever, uh, the opposite message of his earlier writings. So, do you think that the life of a saint is someone who just got it right from point A to point B, that they were perfect all the time. Certainly, Gregory's life is one that shows that this isn't the case. Right from his conversion, we see that there is initial earnestness, but then he took a few steps back, course correcting when Gregory the theologian stepped in. Now, perhaps the same narrative played out in his theology. Now, he held at one time a position that ran counter to orthodoxy, yet at some point he decided otherwise. And this sort of thing is not unheard of. St. Basil, Gregory's own brother, held a position at one point that would now be deemed as heretical. At the Council of Constantinople in 360, there were theological factions who basically fought over the spelling of a word. Well, not actually. It was the meaning of the word that, that mattered. The two camps were the Homoeusians and the Homoousians. The Homoousians. The Homoeusians believed that Jesus' essence was sort of like that of the Father, where the Homoousians, those who the council later decided were correct, believed that Christ was truly the same essence of the Father. Basil, at the beginning of the council, was on the wrong side. He was a Homoeusian. Yet, through the deliberations, he decided to change his mind. And perhaps here is where we can reflect. Maybe you believe that being a saint is the same thing as being right. Gregory, in heart and mind, was a work in progress, as you are. There is only one thing, aside from the truth, that we need in order to change our minds, and that's humility. When we are presented with the truth, it is an act of humility to look at yourself, to look at your ideas, your thoughts, your beliefs, your behaviors, and to recognize that, no, I am the one who is wrong. Now, any one of us can be wrong about a great many things. However, it is the saint who, by God's generosity, gains the ability to reform themselves in heart and mind into something more. This is what Gregory did. He was a work in progress, each step of the way improving. Sometimes he fell back, and sometimes he corrected himself. In the end, he corrected himself. Now, those who present him as some kind of a poster child for universalism along with Origen do so by isolating his writings and not reading him in his totality. Therefore, presenting him in a light that is dishonest. 
Gregory really is a saint of the church. In the Seventh Ecumenical Council, the Council about Icons, they announced him as the father of the fathers. So, do you have thoughts, ideas, and opinions that need to change? Maybe we can all go to Gregory today, each and every one of us, and ask for his saintly intercession and show us what ideas, what behaviors, what thoughts we have that need reforming. And ending this podcast, let's pray his tropar. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. In truth, you were revealed to your flock as a rule of faith, an image of humility and a teacher of abstinence. Your humility exalted you. Your poverty enriched you. Hierarch Father Gregory, entreat Christ our God that our souls may be saved. Thank you very much for listening today. This has been your dose of Agios. My name is Bill. Have a good one. And St. Gregory, pray to God for us. Thanks.